my job doesn't have to be the most interesting thing about me. And the amount of pressure that is relieved when I don't have to have my job means so much to me. And also, dude, like these problems are so big. Like how, how, who do I need? I need to be like the whitest of white men to believe that I need to stay there and solve this problem. Like I, I don't know, like from the beginning, I like didn't see that I had to stay here to solve this problem. I'm like, this is a group project. This is a baton pass, right? And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to run a marathon. I wanted to run a relay race from the beginning. Yeah, I love all of that awareness. And there's some great quotables that (laughs) I laughed a little harder. I had to pull away from the microphone on that whitest of white men comments. Oh, it's so good. And then I think also just, I want to commend courage because this is not a comfortable world. It's not a comfortable world for literally anyone at this moment. I'm looking out at the smoke yet again today. And there is almost zero safety as we know it as a normative, right? Societal safety, the things that we're like, oh, my job is going to be there next week. This is going to be there next week. To then take a step back and say, like, wait a second, this is what we're here to do. We're here to help each other's suffering end, period. And once that truth hits, it's that's the end. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all faced help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. couldn't again you may have heard me say this before be more excited my guest today is long-term friend rachel and i mean i'm I'm looking at you and i'm thinking about i've got all of these memories like a rolodex of memories of us meeting for the first time in los angeles literally at a cafe um i can remember pulling up and being introduced by our mutual friend kaz brescher and she had been singing the praises of your passion your mission and what you do to me for many months prior. And so I don't know who was more excited about the meeting, her or I. And so you come into this big ball of nervous energy, of excitement energy, and get to tell me all about what you were doing, which is at the time, I think you were in year four of your organization called Swipe Out Hunger, which works with colleges and universities to design and implement a range of anti-hunger programs. I I love that, a range of anti-hunger programs. I think we say that at ABLF too, including the Swipe Drive, which enables students to donate meals to their peers facing food insecurity on campus. Now that, we're going to unpack all of this, but you served as the CEO for nine years altogether and started that nonprofit when you were just 21, when you were an undergrad, after seeing a problem and designing for it. And I was instantly in love. Like whatever we can do, however we can put our organizations together, however I as a person can help out. 
Rachel, it's such an honor to have you here today. How are you? Mark, I'm so excited to be on the pod. There are so many chapters to our story that I think demonstrate just the journey of being in this work. So really excited to kind of dissect, to share more. I'm doing great. Got back from Chicago last night and um, feeling feeling the fall season, which I feel like if we're not in touch with the equinoxes and the, and the solstices, we're missing out on a chance to be more grounded. And so I'm feeling very grounded in the transition of the season. I love all of that. And I've got to ask, did you hit the restaurant in Chicago? I didn't. I, I went to Chicago and uh, life happens. So I uh, ended up having to nurse a friend. <laughs> um, no. Yeah, well, no, just a heartbreak, a potential heartbreak. And so um, that comes first. Absolutely. And public spaces are not always the best for that, just depending on, on the severity of it. Uh, well, you now have an exceptional restaurant recommendation for the next time that you're back. Chicago is a great city. And again, it's great to have you here today. I want to talk a little bit more about Swipe Out Hunger. And from my lens, when we're designing for food um, sovereignty, food insecurity, and those pieces, I think the stats are what always gets me most excited because they shock people. And I like when people are shocked. I love it. I love it when people are floored. And you and I love to talk stats, particularly on the US side, but the Canadian ones are almost a mirror image. So as we talk today, I think it's important for our audience to know that wherever you're listening, these stats ring pretty much true. This isn't a us or a them problem. It's not a, oh, that's across the border. That's terrible. That's just not real. It's the same problem and it's exponentially getting worse. So I would love us to start with when you start uncovering you're at college you see what's happening. There's more of a personal story here. We'll get into that later. But you see what's going on. How does this whole journey begin for Swipe Out and for you? Initially, it was just such um, anger. Honestly, I was like 18 and just angry that I had extra money in my meal plan and my school was telling me that I couldn't help use the extra money to feed other students on campus. It was just felt robbed of my freedom of what to do with my meal credits. Uh, and eventually what fuels a lot of our work now is this notion that we had the pandemic, which brought to light how many people across our countries are experiencing poverty and using that as an opportunity to really not just create emergency solutions, but systemic ones. So when it comes to stats, uh, one in three college students experience food insecurity. What does that mean? Let's put it in the context of the fact that 30 million American children rely on their public school from kindergarten through 12th grade for their primary meals, right? I was one of those kids. You get a little yellow lunch ticket at the time. You walk in the cafeteria, you get what you need. And what happens when that kid goes from being a 12th grader to going to their state school across the street or their community college or to another school? They're in, a, a, honestly, a worse financial position because now they've had to move. They have this burden of school and those meals, that breakfast and lunch are gone. So it shouldn't be so shocking for us once we think about the pipeline of food insecurity, why students experience hunger. And, um, you know, if we talk about hunger, we have to talk about homelessness, right? In Los Angeles, one out of five community college students experience homelessness and the most amazing thing is they're still in school. So the resiliency comes through in the data, right? That these people are experiencing these challenges and yet they're still in school. They're still committed to a better life. 
It's so true. And we did an event together just pre-pandemic at one of those community colleges where we were cooking with, um, we were cooking with chefs in training and we got to do a dinner as well. But in that day cooking, three of those students, one of who ended up doing some more volunteer work and working with us too, um, had experienced exactly that. And, and the gentleman in particular had slept in his car for a good part of his schooling and was holding down a full-time job and was going to full-time school and had a kid. And so doing all of those things, like I can't even imagine going to school, you know, what I mean? like just even holding down a curriculum at this point, let alone all of those things and being fully food insecure during it. So you're right. The resiliency is incredible. But the fact that we actually allow this to happen, that we are, we're, you know, perpetuating these cycles is, you know, is the fuel to your work. And of course, to our work, but definitely to yours. And I love watching that passion in person for certain. And so you're 21. You know that these things are real. You're furious at the system. And it's like, this is crazy to me. I have money in my hand that I'm not allowed to transfer to somebody who doesn't. Like, this is simply a bureaucratic issue. And so what's the first step that you take? Well, at first, it's like just going into the dining hall and choosing to buy food in a to-go box and handing it out to folks, right? And then, of course, what happens when hundreds of meals are being brought in and out of the dining hall? The administration gets terrified of liability issues, food <laughs> safety issues. Their dollars are leaving the door. Um, and we were you know, threatened to be shut down multiple times until we sat and negotiated with the campus and got them to agree to just transfer the funds onto the accounts of other students or into a fund that we would use to help buy food, to donate to our pantry or to the local community. Um, and I, you know, I was supposed to go to law school, right? Like I grew up a very nice, you know, unoffensive is the word to describe me up until age 18. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> to the, the notion that suddenly I was saying, this policy, does it make sense? And pushing back against authority was something that woke me up to understand my mm. power. Like, wow, mm. if I actually just push a little bit more, I could change policies. I can then change hundreds of people's lives every day. Uh, and it just became a little, um, I don't know, intoxicating, right? Yes. And I wanted to give every other young person that feeling of, hey, just come volunteer with us and see how you feel after, Right. Um, so it was almost, uh, that was, that was the high I was chasing. How do I get more people to realize how powerful they were? Um, and then I graduated in 2012, um, did a year of service, um, in direct service, got to see just how much poverty shackles people. I was helping people get 17 hour, uh, $17 an hour jobs, but if they have three kids, that's not going to get them out of poverty. Right. It just helped me understand that when I choose what part of the change spectrum I want to be on, it doesn't have to be in the trenches, right? It could be creating systemic change. And that spoke to me more. And so, you know, I was on a college campus last night and students asked for advice. And I was like, don't choose a job based on an issue. Choose a job based on what you're doing. Do you need and want to be face-to-face? -face? Do you love analyzing po uh, policy? Like, what is the thing, the action you love doing? And then choose an issue after that. Um, but that experience really, I think, showed me that I don't have to be face-to-face. -face, um, but that experience was really formative. Yeah. We definitely feel into the problems. I think being able to see and touch them and we've developed programs 
and and just I feel like almost in tandem in a lot of our conversations, like we're doing this or we're doing this or we're doing this. And it's really about creating advocates. But what you're saying, it's not just about creating advocacy and awareness. It's about helping people who are becoming advocates understand their own power. And I think this is the critical time for that. So this is a great time to have you on the show. And I also just want to throw the stat out as we go to break. And that stat is since 2010, Swipeout has been responsible for serving just shy of 5 million meals across 450 campuses, folks. This is not a, we started this thing and a couple campuses got on board. 450 campuses and just shy of 5 million meals. You're on better with my dear friend, Rachel. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. In the first segment, we got to know a little bit about how Rachel came to the work, discovered her own power, and has been ever since inspiring others to do the same, doing grassroots activism, but also on the Hill. I mean, I, I love that this was a real a big moment that Swipeout got named as an Obama White House champion for change. You know, when you think when you think about the moment where you're you're like, oh, I'm going to get these credits swapped over so this person who I'm witnessing being hungry can eat to being in the White House. And that used to mean something or a lot more anyway. Like those moments were much bigger. You know, I think I just want to hear you talk more about, this is not what I had planned at all, but I would want to hear you talk more about that, that understanding and realization of power and then starting to see it, like witnessing it others and then continually decentering yourself because I've witnessed you do that and put other people in power since day one, right? This wasn't uh, you went to a retreat five years into starting the organization and we're like, oh, I suddenly understand decentering myself. And as a woman of color, you know, that's also not the thing that you would necessarily be drawn to, right? But I've watched you do it with EDs. I've watched you do it with other people. So those two things enmeshed together, I would love to hear you talk about, about like understanding your own power, the transference of that power, particularly when, you know, you need to hold on pretty tight to a nonprofit. How does that all happen? How does that feel? And what do you think has been the success of it all? One of my teachers, Adrian Marie Brown, says, trust the people and they become trustworthy. And the beautiful thing about starting from ground zero was I had nothing to lose. I was literally starting in my parents' house in the suburbs when I decided to go full time and I had nothing to lose. So I placed a lot of faith in people. And because I have a good sense of people, I chose the right people around me. And those people showed me how much better it possibly is when you're not alone, when you're like actually having people be co-creators, right? My first real hire, Marissa Schnittman, like believed in me more than I believed in myself. And having that energy around you as like a 22, 23-year-old I didn't realize how important it was, right? So I'm like, well, let me bring in more people who have that belief in the work we're doing, who are also Mm -hmm. crazy and think we can actually build this world and we can change that person's mind in a loving way, right? Um, Very early on, someone gave me the advice as I was talking about these like dining companies that we had to work with. And because, you know, a majority of college dining halls are run by for profit companies, right? They did not want our program on campus. And I was talking about how annoying these companies are. 
someone goes, well, I wouldn't want to work with you either if that's how you spoke about me, right? So making sure mm. the people I was bringing in were also people that were generative, that led with love. Um, and the work just became so much more fun. I still had to like overcome a lot of lone wolf syndrome um, that comes with those first few years of leading alone. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's made my life so easy now. You know, spoiler alert, I left my position as CEO about two months ago after nine years full time running the organization. And that process was met with love. I was so afraid that people would be like, why are you leaving us? But it was really just met with so much love and reciprocity and appreciation. Um, and I think that's because everyone felt like the work is a, is their thing. They didn't come there like a cult to work there with me, right? People, of mm-hmm. course, that's a part of it, the relationship. But if you lead with the mission at the center from the beginning, change, which is inevitable, transition, which is inevitable, become smooth, become something that everyone feels a part of. Um, and to just round it back to that moment at the White House with President Obama, yeah, I mean, that week, the school was trying to shut down our program. And yet here we were with the most powerful man in the world who was telling us what you're doing is how the world will change, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to make sure you have the right people around you projecting, reflecting uh, about your work. And something else that he said that guided me as I left my college campus, became surrounded by fewer radical people, was you know people say that if you're idealistic when you're young, like that's fine. You're supposed to be idealistic. But the challenge becomes when you're older and you're still idealistic, people will say you're crazy. Like don't trust that person. They live on another planet. But the trick is to hold on to that idealism, right? One our students wanted to launch campaigns that challenged my notion that were really radical with what these students wanted to do. I'd be like, you know best, right? Like, trusting that whoever is leading now, the next generation, has a, has a line of sight that's that sees farther than we can. So maintaining that idealism, I think, kept me really open to continuing to bring in fresh new leadership throughout the years. Yeah. And I, I want to thank you for that. And I want to take a little bit of a pause because power is, as you mentioned earlier, intoxicating. And when the accolades continue to vamp on and when you're actually finally seeing success is the moment that you've decided to step away. Like you're finally in the stability point. And I, you know, I won't go into funding and I won't go into like all of the things that have happened since our friendship and mentor-menteeship both ways has occurred. Um, but just knowing where you are right now to say, I'm going to step away and I have other things that I want to pursue in life. But more importantly, I think that the power dynamic is better spread into those who who will continue to lead. People often have an identity crisis at that moment, right? Because their identity is their nonprofit. Their identity is their business, shop front, pizza shop, whatever it may be. That is how they define themselves. And so can you tell us a little bit of how you, because I think this is an incredible tool for anybody. And one of the reasons I was excited to have you on here is thinking about that separation of who Rachel is as the human being, passions, dreams, hopes, desires, all of those things, from never having had a break, right? From never, like literally never, ever having had a break to choosing to take not only break in time for self, but also choosing to hand the reins over of the thing 
that potentially you not only adore most, but you identify with most? What does that look like as a process? How do you do that? Well, I'll say that it helped to have people like you, Mark, to bounce ideas off of, of like, what could this format look like? What is my relationship to the work? Can I still be a voice and a platform for the work separate from investing every day of my life into the operations? So I, I feel like the first step was like not being afraid to talk about it. Like I remember when we met in New York on that rainy day and after like three coffee shops, we always, I always go to the wrong coffee shop when we meet. It's a great tradition. <laughs> um, it is. And um, just being not afraid, this was like two years before I was ready to leave, but being not That's afraid right. to just talk to you about that, Right. And hearing you sharing so openly about what your relationship is to the work and how it's evolved. Um, so one, it's not being afraid, like with trusting people to share what you're going through and what you're thinking about. Um, and I had this crazy thought um, about a week ago as I've been reflecting on this journey that I, I, I kind of told myself a few like maybe a year or two years ago, that my job doesn't have to be the most interesting thing about me. And the mm. amount of pressure that is relieved when I don't have to have my job means so much to me. But instead I can say, well, what values does that job represent that I need that title to tell people that I can just live within myself every day through how I behave with people, through other projects that I'm on. This job, which serves as a very convenient con container for telling people who I am doesn't have to be, you know, constrained just to the job and just to the title. Um, and also, dude, like these problems are so big. Like how, how, who do I need? I need to be like the whitest of white men to believe that I need to stay there and solve this problem. Like I, I don't know, like from the beginning, I like didn't see that I had to stay here to solve this problem. I, I'm like, this is a group project. This is a baton pass, right? And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to run a marathon. I wanted to run a relay race from the beginning because, dude, like students today, they're doing things really different, right? And if I stayed at the le as leading the organization, I'd be stuck in the past, bringing in a new leader who's like, let me spend the next few months just understanding where we are today, right? Let me bring some fresh eyes and then lead from there. I recognize that I was about to like, there's a million stories of startup founders that stay at their positions too long and it harms the organization because it's still centering them as opposed to the work. Um, so I was very afraid of that. Uh, I love all of that awareness. And there's some great quotables that <laughs> I laughed a little harder. I had to pull away from the microphone on that whitest of white men comment. Oh, so good. And then I think also just, I want, I want to commend courage before we go to break, because this is not a comfortable world. It's not a comfortable world for literally anyone at this moment. I'm looking out at the smoke yet again today. And there is almost zero safety as we know it as a normative right? Societal safety, the things that we're like, oh, my job is going to be there next week. This is going to be there next week. And working and living in service, at least you have that anchor. You have an anchor of, you know, what's going to be there next week? Hunger. And you know who needs to fund hunger? Everybody. And you know, I've got a really good base and I've got these folks who, is, who are going to help me do this. So my job is secure. To then take a step back and say, not only have I created this thing, I've created this community, I've created that. And this doesn't require me at the center. 
And also, I believe that there is something bigger that I can contribute to if I sacrifice and start again. And so we're going to get into that in a moment. I'm so, so happy to have you here. Folks, you're all better. Keep it locked. Welcome back. So we've talked about just just casually in 20 minutes with a little bit of commercial break, decentering self, stepping down from loving organizations, eradicating hunger on college campuses, the statistics around hunger and poverty for students who are in college at this moment, one in four. And I always say those stats are skewed low. I always say that. So just let us say like at the bare minimum, it's 25%. But we think it's um, you know exponentially climbing. Something worth adding right now. There has been drastic increase inflation-wise in food costs and transport costs and all of these things. Those costs are false. They're false inflation for the most part. And they are continuing to perpetuate the cycle of violence and poverty from shareholders, from large companies. And so without you know, giving that frame, this is a gigantic societal problem that is worsening because of bad behavior by those companies who own the assets and control the way that we consume and have access. Those are the big things that Rachel and I and our organizations and the people that lead our organizations uh, focus on. We're really looking at that because if you're looking simply just at the person who's receiving a meal, that's what we're missing the point. We're genuinely missing the point. How do we move the forces? How do we drive the forces? How do we learn the skills to grow our own food, to have community banks of those things, to be able to support each other in those ways so that we are not 100% reliant on a system that does not care about us? And I think just starting with that framing in this next segment is important to me because here's a quote, and I'm excited about this part. Let me just say that. Hunger was something I always saw, but I didn't know was personal. It was only a couple years ago that my mom told me that our family benefited from SNAP, formerly known as food stamps. I was the kid in kindergarten who had a little yellow free lunch ticket. You've already alluded to this earlier, but I didn't think it was a big deal. I thought everyone got free lunch. So this realization, what, 10 years in? What does that feel like for you? How does that land in your body? What does it mean for your work? You know, my initial reaction was, wow, like, the families that I think about as helping were my families, right? Was my family, right? My dad coming to the States as an immigrant and being able to, uh, being able to pursue entrepreneurship to start his own companies because he knew his family was going to eat that night because of public programs like SNAP was the peace of mind that gave him the opportunity to go off and achieve this quote unquote American dream. Right. And so, how many people, how many families were our food pantries on college campuses or meal swipe programs giving the opportunity to? Right. That was like washed over me the sense of connection um, and the sense of just proving that it works, like proving that basic things work because my family was an example of how these programs change lives. The second realization was just the stigma 
Like how stigmatized was it that I had dedicated my life to hunger and it took my mom nearly a decade to tell me that we benefited from these programs, that she used to work in her college dining hall that, that because she would get free meals that way, right? It's just like, and so after that, I'm like, let me talk about this, right? I, I belong to um, an Iranian, I'm Iranian and Jewish, which in Los Angeles and New York are very big populations. And the stereotype is that we love our public image. We don't talk about the challenges. We talk about what school our kids get into. We talk about which family our kid just got married into. Um, and I was like, let me talk to more of my friends about their parents' experience. And everyone was on food stamps. Everyone. Everyone had a case manager. And so my thing became, let me talk to more people and normalize this. And no one was... Of of my generation, no one is afraid to talk about it. We were proud of it to say that we mm-hmm. came from rags to riches or American middle class or whatever. There's this really interesting transition of that pride, right? So it's the, I was poor in a country that I came from, but in this one, we never talk about that. Like I've, I've made it, so therefore there can't be that. And then the transition to, wait a second, I'm a landed immigrant or a generational, like I was born here. And I'm proud to talk about the fact that we struggled yet again and we've reached another level, right? I think that, that that's so beautiful and I agree wholeheartedly. I think working with the youth and hearkening back to something you said just in the last segment too, kids, and I say kids as a 47-year-old man, as being anybody under the age of 25 apparently now, but the youth that we get to work with from 14, 15, 16, et cetera, their level of emotional intelligence and ownership of truth saying less than saying more, being definitive about what the actual problems are and taking absolutely no shorts around it is so incredibly important. And I think that's because they looked up to your generation that specifically said, as I find out these things, I am totally good to erode my family's narrative around that we were doing fine because we weren't. We weren't doing fine. And that's this is like a facade Right. So I think that's incredibly important. I just want to say like that wanting to be vulnerable and share is again, something you model on stages everywhere you go. Like, let's just be authentic. Like why choose any other path of relating to each other than authenticity? Right. And so if we can model that in our personal relationships, in our work, that's how we change the world to like be cliche. But yeah. I think that's really important. I'll take that as well. It's a interesting thing at a speaker's bureau that essentially fired me uh, way back in the day, reached back out and the client had actually requested me and they came to me and were like, hey, we, we want to book you. And I was like, oh, am I no longer too quote unquote hostile for you? You know, is it is it this thing? Like the things that we were talking about in 2012, 2013, we're like, oh, hey, stop, quit that. You know, it spoke to a very specific audience and that audience got angrier and that's, that's the point. It's very much like your moment of inception of saying, wait a second, me being meek or humble or quiet is not serving the things that I'm passionate about. Right before I took a stage in 2012, 2013, I was a businessman for all intents and purposes from public awareness. And that, you know, that one sentence or one statement or one changed moment turns you into an advocate and you never feel more true. Like, wait a second, this is what we're here to do. We're here to help each other's suffering end, period. And once that truth hits, it's that's the end. So I thank you on that reflection. Let me reflect it straight back and just say that I've got to witness and spend time with 
Maddie comes to mind, like a lot of the people within your organization that have come through and advocacy and this work is a, a wisdom tree, right? And if, the more that we know that we're all interconnected in this work and the mycelial work of activism and change is interconnected, you will run into people six, seven, eight years later to see, oh yeah, I, I did an internship at Swipe Out Hunger and then I bounced over to work with the food bank in New York City. And then, you know, I started my own organization that's specifically around food waste. We find our ways through the shaping and the molding and the letting go. So I think that hearing you talk about me stepping away, right? of your organization. It's just part and parcel of that. I can't wait to see where you end up next, whether it's starting a new org, whether it's, you know, running for office, fingers tightly crossed. You know, what does that look like for Rachel going forward? And that's turned into a question. What does that look like for you? I mean, first of all, let me just say America will be very lucky the day that I am insane enough to run for office. Um, I'm going to have to, I don't know, I don't know what, what experience I'll have to have to be convinced that I should raise money and dedicate my life going to chicken dinner. Not, not to, I love public office. I love politicians. They're my celebrities. Like I go up and I see local celeb, local politicians and fangirl them. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, right now what's next for me is just sitting, really just sitting, not even sitting with anything, just sitting going on hour plus long walks, um, being able to travel and spend quality time with friends that, um, help me do that. Um, yeah, it's been a really, and it's been interesting to see what happens, right? I'm in my like first very serious adult relationship. I have, I like the openings that have happened in my life, just how much more energy I have. Um, it's, it's really wonderful to be able to, um, just be, We're going to come back and talk about that. Folks, you're on better. We're moving into segment four. If you're with us on the radio, thank you for tuning in. Your attention and your intention is always appreciated. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. We are, as I said, in the home stretch today. I always feel like these conversations are just getting warmed up at this point. So <laughs> I think that's just like, again, I get a chance to catch up with old friends and and people who I, I respect so deeply and bring them to you. And Rachel is certainly at the top of that list. I want to talk a little bit. You touched on being an Iranian Jew and what that looks like. Uh, and you are very active in that community. And I think that hearing your lens around what that community means and what your religion and your faith means uh, is an important part of this particular episode. I think that so much of that stuff gets confused and maligned, particularly because of media. And so what does your faith do and what, what has it brought for you and how are you active in it as far as it aligns with the work and you as a human being and the sabbatical, et cetera? I think that the biggest support I've had throughout my journey is finding communities that believe in and support me, right? And what community is stronger than your faith community? It is intentionally people who want to be together to share a set of values, to see the world the way it should be. And so my Jewish community has been like cheering me on from the beginning. 
So if it's simply that, if it's simply having community, that's the role that they've played. But it's also the values, right? It was recently Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement. And what you're supposed to do leading up is like ask for forgiveness, but not just say, hey, I'm sorry. There's like multiple steps where you have to acknowledge the harm. You have to provide reparations. You have to... um, you don't even have to get the forgiveness, but you have to take these steps to show true repair of what you did mm. wrong. So learning to lead with those values um, has been, I think, essential to how I see the world, right? You're supposed to take care of your neighbors. You know, religion is oftentimes used as a weapon to separate, when in reality, religion can be an incredible force for mobilizing uh, to, to, to create more good. Um, and then on the Persian part, you know, if, if Iran is a country that's on my heart a lot these days with women um, across the country literally leading a revolution. Um, but Persians are so hospitable. We're warm. We're welcoming. And I'm like, let me just take those values to everyone, not just to others in the community, right? Like, let me take what I've learned and share that generosity with everyone. Um, the challenge, just to like bring us back into this moment, like let's make this podcast a little interesting, is the community also operates as one unit. Everyone has to have the same political views. Everyone has to pray the same way, eat the same way, marry the same way, right? Like intermarriage for an Iranian Jew is marrying like a white Jewish person, right? Like we really only marry each other. (laughs) Um, And I really thought that was limiting. I really don't want us to be, you know, in our own way. So a lot of what I do, I own typicalpersiangirl.com, right? I'm like, let me own this identity, which for a long time I said, I'm not like you. I care about the world. I engage in weight. Like, no, let me actually own this identity and say, this is what it means to be an Iranian Jew. It's been incredible. Like the DMs that I, the, like, that's half the reason why I do what I do for the DMs of young Persian girls who get to see themselves and what's possible for them in a new way. It gets a little tricky when most of my community voted for Donald Trump, right? And is a one-issue voter on Israel and really has such um, trauma come up at the thought of doing anything that doesn't center whatever we've been told centers us. Um, And so there's some risk, right? I've been targeted by my own community. I've been, um, what is it called? Like all these things, like people just posting bullshit about me, people in my own community, because I'm a threat to whatever they believe is essential. Um, That is the 1% compared to the 99% of the love. Um, But that's when it hits the hardest, when it's your own people, right? So I'm committed even more to creating a future because I'm seeing it work over the course of the past 10 years. I'm seeing how creating that space has changed lives and has let people move away or marry who they want to marry or get involved in causes. So that's become a huge anchor of, of, of my justice work. I love all of that. And there's a couple of things and threads I want to pull from it specifically, which is um, that 1% critique always is an opportunity. Right. And it's, and sometimes it sucks to take the higher ground consistently. Cause you just like, you know, you're just being an asshole, frankly, but because they are, But outside of that, it's like, where is that pain point for you? And how is this an opportunity? Because if this is your passion, your passion is anti-X or pro-Y, 
what is that that's for you? And you said it's a one-issue voter issue, right? It's like, where do you stand on Palestine? Okay, cool. Well, then that's what you, what's going to happen. And not seeing, being able to see clearly enough that that's just straight ballot manipulation by a candidate saying, oh, I know that this is this segment and this segment influences this many people and they move as one. That's saying like 7% of my vote is one wave and I just have to say that I'm this. I will never do anything about it because I couldn't, I don't care about the people on my own block, let alone the people over there unless there's oil involved. So there's an opportunity for a conversation to say, actually, this candidate has never told the truth once. You know, they've never done anything they said they were going to do. I think we're bigger, better, faster, and stronger than this. I understand your plight and your pain. This is a very polarizing issue. I would like to walk with you on this or have a conversation. I've watched you do that work. So I just wanted to pull that thread out because I think that's incredibly brave and important. And we are baited by our own folks and activism and advocacy daily. So no, like, I think there's this really interesting thing. There's like glam poverty, right? The glam poverty folks who have the big balls and they're all connected to the people. And of course, they genuinely get hit with crisis and like people are being called out consistently because it's not real, right? It's not a real thing. And then there's the folks on the front lines who often, us included, are like crabs in a bucket. Right? It's like we, we are fighting for the same buckets of money. We're arguing amongst ourselves about what is the best course of action. Is it housing first? Is it services first? What, what are the things? And we're having this argument over here that we think is the center of the world and it's, nobody else is listening. Yeah, it's, it's that let's go back to the mission and not get lost in the politics or in the drama, right? So the moment I realize I can't convince someone to leave their political home because it's become their safety place, that I just switch and I'm like, let me tell you some stories. Let me tell you, of like, let me do things that just deepen our relationship because I'm not trying to waste energy winning a fight that is not even a fight, right? It's not even a discussion. Um, and that self-preservation and seeing the bigger picture, really, you kind of have to like learn that muscle. It's, it's hard to learn that without going through it. Correct. And I want to hear a specific story. I want to pull one out, but we're going to hold that for the extra innings on the podcast because I feel like I can feel one bubbling. So I'm just going to put a little pin in that right over here. And as we're coming to a close on the radio show, again, folks, if you're listening, I really appreciate you showing up for these conversations. This is, you know, we're well into our six-month mark at this point, and we've been able to hold space and host so many people on so many critical issues. There's few issues more critical than the future of our brain banks. And our brain banks are literally our collegiate and universal students, the, the folks who are pushing through to get an education to lead a smarter, brighter, and better future are hungry. They're unhoused. They're unsupported. And Swipe Out Hunger is an organization you can support directly and easily. Links will all be in the bio. Rachel's not going anywhere. Trust, follow her on IG. Uh, tap in for all of the different links as well. And, um, you know, I can't wait to see what you do next. Rachel, and thank you for being here with us today. I always love these conversations. It's a chance to kind of like take a step back because as when you're in the work, you don't really get the chance to. You're just like, go, go, go. And I always appreciate the chance to take a step back with you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Of course. Love you very much. Thank you for being here. Anything final that you want to share with people before we sign off? Um, all right. First and foremost, ego. It's a great thing. It's something that can fuel you through the hardest times. But I've learned, um, especially because I talked to a lot of young people, they haven't yet learned to channel the ego. So if you're a young person listening, your ego can be your best friend or your worst enemy. 
make sure you're making choices from a place that's grounded in mission. I, I always have to remind myself myself that when I'm making choices. Uh, so I always want to remind folks. That's a beautiful closing note. Folks, you've been on better. It's an honor to bring you these conversations. Your attention and intention are deeply appreciated. And I will see you next week. And if you are with us on the pod or, or anywhere that you stream these things, we are ready for that story. Rachel, have you got one in particular and details as many as, you, as feels comfortable, just really letting us in and learning from you and taking a tool away from how to deal with these things? Because let me just give it a little bit more framework as well. While we may be on larger, brighter platforms where we're being attacked at times, these things happen in the gas station in the grocery store. These things happen on your community PTA. They happen on the soccer field. These things literally happen at the airport right now. They happen at a train station. They happen in traffic. And so how we deal with ourselves, how we hold ourselves, how we respect ourselves and our fellow people is so critically important. So that's why I'm pulling the story out, not just because I love gossip. Well, I mean, as you listed off um, all the places, what came to mind was a time when I was in a hotel lobby in Milwaukee. I think, yeah, Milwaukee. And there's a woman at the table. We were both like waiting to get picked up or go somewhere. And we started chatting and she asked what I did. And I told her, I helped make sure that food is not the reason why a college student can't graduate. And she said, I was 19 and I got pregnant and I took a semester off, but then I went back and I got my degree and no one helped me. And I don't think that we should have all these handouts for college students because if I was able to do it, I came from this background, I'll be fine. And my response to her was, wow, you are so incredible. Like that is incredible that you did that. Like I, I hope you've taken a chance to like be proud of yourself and for how resilient you were. Do you think she was ready for me to respond with acknowledgement? Absolutely not. Had she ever actually framed her experience as a positive thing the way I just projected towards her? Probably not. Um, so as much as we can see people, even their hardest moments in beautiful ways and and start the conversation from there, like I'm going to see you with so much abundance and such resilience. What was her response? Her response was to tell me more of her story. She started telling me how she did it, like what she did with her kid, what job she had while she was working, why she went back to school. And now she's like a successful corporate businesswoman. Um, and then we just started talking about anything else because it was clear politics wasn't going to be it. But I think about that story all the time. Right. And I think that's just really a perfect example of energy. You know, I, I grew up watching Steven Seagal. All right. For any of you like action film fans, Seagal was it in the 90s. He had all of, like when ninja movies were still raging. Seagal practiced Aikido and Tai Chi. And watching him take somebody else's force and transfer it versus being the aggressor. Right. And you would see him in these gigantic fight scenes and people would be throwing all their energy at him and he would be using Tai Chi and Aikido, transferring that force so that they would harm themselves or transferring that force so they would have a gentle landing in some instances, rarely. And I was fascinated. And I was at a very young age, you know, like 9, 10, 11 years old. I was like, what is he practicing and how? Like this, I was studying Taekwondo at the time, really into martial arts and started to learn Aikido and, and Tai Chi in a way. And understanding that that same energy lives in us 
and that we have a choice and an opportunity to either embrace or diffuse or to flat out just hold space and that really open air is another tool and a tactic in that and not a we react so quickly right our face reacts before we even have a chance to say something and that face is a judgment and choosing to not use that weapon or weaponize those things those things are acts of violence as well right they very much are like a suck of the teeth a roll of the eyes a cocked brow the body language of turning your head away all of those things are dismissive and disrespectful instead of just holding a space and saying, I hear that, that's incredible. Or I can't imagine how challenging that was. And that's, it's incredibly honorable. And you know, I also just wanna say, you're a young woman and if you've been leading these organizations and facing all of this stuff, that Milwaukee story is one of many. What does it now look like for you when you say, I'm not gonna enter politi politics, but politicians are my favorite. You're an advocate. What's gonna happen? What do you think you're gonna do? <laughs> I honestly, you know, one of the motivators is I've never had a boss before. Like I want to be on a team where payroll is not reliant on me for once. Right. Ooh. I want to have someone else who's giving me feedback. Right. Like I've been this shiny object that for a long time, except for a handful of mentors, people didn't want to give feedback to. Um, so I want to have a, a boss. Um, I want to be on a team that I get to build. Um, and I don't know exactly what's next, but I'm, I'm, you know, really invested in the food space and I would love to continue, you know, I've also only ever worked in the nonprofit space. And so maybe trying out the private sector, working at a food company, working at a food tech company, thinking about food supply chains. Like I want to get my world to be a little bit bigger, um, understanding that my life, hopefully as I knock on wood is long and, um, I want to start to have more experiences that inform my activism um, and advocacy in the years to come. I love all of that. And I mean, the doors are all there. <laughs> so as, as mentor, my mind is like, oh, I got to connect you to ABCD. But we'll have that conversation offline and as we do and switch those hats so very often. Now, I also want to ask you, and I, I have to ask this question almost every time at this point because of the state of the world, I'm looking out my window I'm on the unceded territories recording today of the Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish nations. And part of those nations is burning again today, uh, rampantly. And it turned from a two hectare to an 11 hectare fire overnight. And I'm, we're smoked out here. You can see the glow from my window, Rachel, if you look over this way. Yeah. Wow. I thought it was just the sunlight. Oh my God. Yeah. It's the smoke and the sun. There is no clarity out there. We are in this space. So as I started segment, I think, three with, which was the capitalist multinational shareholder lens that has created this gigantic climate lens. And as a California resident, you know, you're there too. Rachel, the human being, how are you doing with all of this? And I think this tool is what I'm asking for. How does that inform your next steps in your work and how you're operating as a person? I'll also acknowledge that I'm on the unceded Tongva land. You know, the hardest thing for me is the fact that we have all the answers. Like we know how to slow down climate change. We know how to address poverty, increase wages, subsidize the right things, unsubsidize the wrong things. We know how to make schools more. We know how to solve these problems. And yet we're acting like it's really hard. And that really messes with me. So I'm trying to 
put in perspective how what I do next can be um, from a place of optimism, from a place where change is possible, where I can actually come in the same way, swipe out hunger. When we started, the thing we had to overcome was the fact that administrators were not acknowledging that college students were going hungry. They're like, that's not a problem here. Maybe on other schools. And then it was, okay, fine, it's real, but it's not my responsibility. That's the government's job. That's their mom's job. Um, And now we're at a point where schools are regularly, dozens every month, reaching out to us administrators and saying, how do we do this work, right? That's been the reality for the past few years. And so that ability to go in and create change, to make sure that a system was changed was really incredible. I think a rare opportunity as an activist to change a system and then pass bills in seven states that have provided over a hundred million dollars to fund those programs. So I'm like, let me just find the next thing like that, right? Like I don't have to, you know, there's a, there's some, I have it on my wall. There's a, an old rabbinic quote in Pirkei Avot where a rabbi said, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. It is not your responsibility to fix everything, but you're also obligated to take action, right? You're not obligated to fix everything, but you still have some requirement to not desist from it. You have to do the work. Mm. And so even, you know, in the past three minutes, I'm like, Rachel, you don't need to solve climate change, but you, you should do something, right? Um, and I think in this like hyper global world where we constantly have information why is this generation so depressed and anxious? Because they're just overwhelmed with data and information on how hard things are. Let's just focus a little bit, right? It's not all our work. We can learn, we can share, we can be educated, but just pick a part that's yours um, and be invested in that. I love all of that. And I also have a giant grin right now because I got to ask you, like, what, what do you think the main role of a senator or a member of parliament uh, or somebody who sits in the house, what do you think their job is? What their job should be Mm. is to, I mean, obviously pass bills that make our countries better, right? Beyond that, it's to model what leadership means. Leadership in our communities, it's to model values. They are publicly elected spokespeople, right? Why was 45 so disturbing for many of us is because he was our most highly elected public spokesperson for our country. And that didn't sit right with me because he didn't live the values that I wanted to have purported as an American. Um, So I want to elect people and I want people elected who will help pass laws for sure. What are your policy priorities? But also like, who are you going to be? Because you're going to set an example for people, hopefully. Right. I'm curious to hear what you think. Oh, I, I get all kinds of thoughts, but I'm not done with my line of questioning just yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, in the truest form of all of that, how do politicians get elected? Like, how do they get elected? And what does that look like? Like, what's the response there? You know, I think a lot of politicians get elected by political decision makers who determine who is going to maintain status quo and move things forward just enough, right? But honestly, I think that the, like, I think about the US and our government system doesn't allow for change, right? Like, uh, there's a reason why swipe out hunger just works really at the state level. 
because you can get a lot done at the state level, right? Conservatives are gerrymandering at the state level like crazy, and that's influencing our federal level. We can do the same thing at the state level, right? We have seven bills passed, 13 bills introduced in states across the U.S., sending millions of dollars to college students. And everyone, you know, there was a big White House conference on hunger, health, and nutrition that happened last week. And all these activists were so excited, all these companies. And it's pretty huge for the U.S. government to be like, okay, we're going to talk about the fact that hunger is happening, but nothing's going to Nothing's going to come unless we take that action from that conference and go back to USDA and say, hey, this conference said you need to increase SNAP by 20%. Hey, Department of Education, are you talking to USDA about sharing data so you know which students got free breakfast in K-12 so they can get in higher ed, right? It's about like taking those conferences and doing something with them, right? There's a reason why I didn't go. I'm like, cool, epic, have fun. Uh, I love you. And I'm, I'm getting distracted, so I'm going to stay on track here, but I'm putting another pin on the board. So if donors to politicians are the same donors that donate to our organizations, it's people who have wealth that they want to distribute in ways that they feel are just and fair, right? And those dollars then influence 13 policy changes or seven state policy changes or 4.8 million meals or 450 campuses. Isn't that politics? Yes, but it's without having to go to the chicken dinners. <laughs> you are a politician. Make no mistake. Make no mistake about it. Right? You don't you don't have to do the thing. So I'm sitting at a chicken dinner the other night, 3 nights ago actually, with a dear friend who's invited me to sit with the leader of the Green Party uh here locally. And I've never well, once I had to for a donor check, and I, you know, I'm going to own this because the person will probably be listening, for a prime minister that then got elected, who I loathe is a strong word, I'll use it because it's true. So, you know, this happens. And there was the one thing I went to, and I, I felt terrible about it for a long time because I believe that we vote with our presence. Hmm. I believe mm-hmm. that we vote with our presence. If we're in a room, we've made a decision. Oh. Right. And so it hurt my feelings to have done that. But three days ago, I'm in a room listening to a very impassioned leader who's been in politics for 30 plus years. And she is a force of nature. Had I not attended this thing, I don't think I would vote for her. I definitely will be voting for her. I'm very excited about her. I'm excited about what she had to share. And you can tell the difference when somebody's telling you the fucking truth or they're not. And I think we remove this from politics often, right? You can tell the difference. That's why when we watch a debate and our, the horse that we have in the race stumbles over some shit, you're like, oh, you're stumbling because you're lying, right? Like, just tell the, tell the truth, please. That's why we love Bernie. Like, tell the, yes. just tell the truth. It's really simple and we expect you to do it. And so I'm at this dinner a couple of nights ago. And why I did that and shared this whole thing with you is one of the people who was there in leadership said, you are a politician to me. And I vehemently denied it. I said, I absolutely am not. I would never run. I've had to sit in council. I get nosebleeds in there after 12 hours of talking about four-way stops and cats and trees and all sorts of other dumb shit. I I don't have the stomach for it. And they broke it back into Greco-Roman times. And we're like, this is, you are a politician. If you are enacting change and you are chosen by your community and you are backed by your community in ways that are indicative of politics, You are acting in a way, you have strong stances, you carry the data, you advocate on behalf of, you're a politician. So I say to you, Rachel, (laughs) you may not be in one of the color palettes. 
You may not be in the manipulative machine, but you are influencing the machine by the simple statistics that you've shared with us today. You have been doing politics in the way they're supposed to be done. And trust us, you already know this, when the world melts, the politicians will be elected by those who have acted and can be trusted by their community deeply, not by ballots or gerrymandering. Amen. You're already in the role. You're already there. And I feel better. <laughs> I feel better and safer for it. Now, in, in the note of what I believe, as far as politics go, democracy is completely broken. I don't think there's anything else that I need to say about it. It's a disgusting, hot, manipulative mess. Yeah. The fact that there's a two-party yeah. system on the U.S. side is disgusting. Where are the other candidates? Yeah. Where's the space for them? Where are the people that we want to actually represent us, right? And you're one of those people I can say wholeheartedly that uh, I think anybody listening would be honored to have represent us. And we'll let that sit. Comfortably or uncomfortably, it's going to sit. All right. So, folks, you've been with us on Better. You know, Rachel and I could literally talk for another two or three hours easily. And we will offline. Um but today has been a gift of your time, of your wisdom, um, also sharing some insights with us, particularly for those who have come upon this podcast or are listening on the radio. Uh, whether you're in an emergency ward or in a corner store, or you're doing a long haul drive right now and you're listening to this, I hope that uh, you feel seen, um, that this uh, has helped you be able to influence the discussions that you have around this stuff and also that it just normalizes it. Rachel's experience with hunger, mine as a child, the points, you know, 25% of college students. It's, it's not odd, it's not strange, it's not weird, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Food security and sovereignty has been taken from us, and I think that we're all in the movement to get it back. So love you, Rachel. Thank you for being with us today. Love you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great to spend time with everyone who's listening. Folks, we'll be back with you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay political, stay activated, and look forward to spending more time.